There were out in the country children keeping watch over their stock. So Santa Claus came upon them, and they were so afraid. And Santa said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people who can afford them. For unto you will be given great feasts of turkey, stuffing and pudding, and many presents. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the presents wrapped in bright paper, lying beneath a tree adorned with tinsel, coloured balls and lights. And suddenly there will be with you a multitude of relatives and friends praising you and saying, Thank you so much, it was just what I wanted. And it shall come to pass as the friends and relatives have gone away into their own homes. The parents shall say to one another, What a mess to clear up. I'm tired. Let's go to bed and pick it up tomorrow. Thank goodness Christmas only comes once a year. Challenge. Christmas. Because there's so much about it, maybe, that we should challenge. Does it make us happier? Statistically not. 45% of UK adults are worried about funding Christmas this year. Over 50% of adults will spend more than they can afford. And 24% are still paying off the debts from last Christmas. One in four of us are thoroughly depressed about the whole thing. But we insist on doing it. We insist on doing it, even though the reason to celebrate it seems to be absent now from the celebration. The Daily Mail uh, surveyed 5,500 cards in high street shops and found only 67 with pictures of the Bible story. So my question is, is a celebration without anything to celebrate really a celebration at all. Challenge Christmas. There's much to challenge. Our theme is Challenge Christmas, not just because there's much to challenge, but more importantly, because Christmas itself, for those involved, was a challenge. Just as on Top Gear, a hand comes from nowhere giving one single white card to each of the participants, so it's as if, in the fullness of time, a hand appeared dishing out certain challenges for Mary, for Joseph, for the wise men, for the shepherds, for the angels. Even Herod had a challenge all of his own. And with courage, guts, and determination, almost all of them took the challenge bravely, wonderfully, and successfully. Except maybe Herod. He simply had the challenge of making room for another king, and that was too much for him. Challenge Christmas, because their challenge is my challenge. The challenges they faced are the challenges I face. What do I say when God asks me to do something costly like he did to Mary and Joseph? Do I leave everything behind and travel a distant land to worship, if that's what I'm asked? Do I make room for a new king when Herod couldn't, and the Herod inside of us is equally tyrannical from time to time? Challenge Christmas because what was God doing in that stable, in that place? What was God doing there when I want to live in comfort? And what was God doing as a vulnerable and helpless baby when I do as much as I can to build walls of security and safety around my 21st century life? The challenge is mine and maybe yours. This morning I want to preach on Joseph. I've been preaching at Christmas for 25 years, but never on Joseph. And I'm kind of excited about it, and rather nervous all at the same time. Because Joseph challenges me 
to the core. His challenge, the one that He embraced with courage and guts, is my challenge. You see, it's a challenge to fathers. A father's challenge. Now, if you're not a father, please don't switch off just now. Listen in, because we need you. There is not a father in this room who does not need your help to be a better dad. And anyway, the principles are true, whether you're a father or not. Joseph, as I said, was gutsy and courageous. And we need fathers like that today that are gutsy and courageous in the things that matter. For most of the time, though, Joseph is kept in the shadows, a kind of Dennis Thatcher or Prince Philip sort of person. The spotlight's on Mary and her child, and Joseph's just there in the shadows. If he does actually get something to say in the nativity play, it's usually a request that's far too late and hopelessly out of time, to which the answer is, no, sorry Joseph, no room. The only line he gets is that of failure. We need to bring this man out of the shadows. He's far too important, far too brilliant, actually, the more I think about him, to leave him tucked away. He was a hard-working, ordinary guy, a righteous man, seeking to live well before God. He's barely a man, though, but already betrothed to a lovely young girl, Mary. The future's full of promise. Soon they'll marry. Children will follow a sign, they hope, of God's blessing. Then that day, where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon? Where were you when Princess Diana died? That day for Joseph. The day he would never, ever forget. How did he find out? Did Mary tell him herself? Did she leave a note? Was the bump no longer hidden under a loose dress? Pregnant. Pregnant. The anger, the shame, the embarrassment. Who was it, Mary? Where is he, Mary? Who else knows, Mary? The betrayal, the broken promises, the deceit. How could you, Mary? I loved you, Mary. With this news, his future is shattered, his reputation is ruined. Some of us have been right where Joseph is in the story just now. We know how much it hurts. And we understand that Joseph has every right to blow up every right to get bitter and angry and resentful. He has every right to bring her to justice, to shame her publicly. She could be stoned for what she did. Oh, Mary, why? But despite the betrayal, his heart remains soft. Hey, that's something for us men, isn't it? This is a man in whose heart God has already worked. So a deeply wounded Joseph sets about shielding her still, from disgrace. His heart is still soft. He was a righteous man, didn't want to expose her, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He chose not to act out of his hurt for more people in our world like Joseph. He didn't kick or stamp or scream, love costs, and Joseph was willing to burden the cost, to carry the price. But God had in mind something that would turn out to be even more costly. God in his mercy told Joseph the truth. But how could he accept that? How could he really believe in that dream for heaven's sake, quite literally? Common sense told him, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Come on. 
Self-defense told him, who on earth will believe me? What will I say? What what will I say to my dad and and my mum? They're righteous people. Pride told him, I can't trust anyone anymore. I thought Mary was mine. I thought we were safe. I thought we were together. Does she expect me to believe a tale like that? But because God said, Joseph risked his reputation. Because God said, Joseph risked the rejection of his community, his family, his parents, by standing by this disgraced peasant girl and promising to bring up her illegitimate child. Hey, the villagers whispered, sure. The rabbis shook their heads and friends tried to slap him into sense. She screwed you over, mate. Send him or send her off to the other bloke. The cloak of shame would have been very real, very thick and very heavy. How quickly can I get that divorce? Instead, he took her into his home, embraced her as his wife, denied himself the conjugal rights that now were legally his to enjoy. He became midwife at the birth, adopted Mary's child as his own. Then when Herod threatened, he closed his family business and relocated them all to foreign parts. He went against the tide of cultural opinion in hundreds of ways. He was the husband to Mary of which Paul speaks. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what Joseph did for Mary. He was in that sense way ahead of his time. He gave himself up for her. And as we are told years later, there's nothing less than to do the same. He was what Christian husbands are commanded to be. A servant leader of their families. A full discussion of responsibilities of men and women uh, are beyond us this morning. But we have to face the fact, men, that we are called to be the head in our family. That's what it says. To be head. To be responsible. What does it mean to lead our families well? The Bible teaches that we are to do exactly that. It's not a choice, but a call that's placed on our lives. Two phrases to capture what the Bible means by this term, headship. Number one is this. The headship that the Bible speaks of is all about loving, not lording. For generations, Christian men have shamed themselves by using these kind of verses to lord it over. That's not the point Paul is making. It wasn't the Christ who lorded himself over the church, but the Christ who gave him himself up for the church. It's loving, not lording. And if you happen to have Ephesians 5 open already because you're that concerned about what I'm saying, you will see that by verse 23, husbands are told again to love their wives. Verse 28, husbands are told again to love their wives. Verse 33, husbands are told again to love their wives. It's about loving, not lording. And secondly, it's about responsibility and not rights. Shame that when people think of the Ephesians 5 passage, they think of what a woman should do. And women, yes, you need to do that as well. But the responsibility is all about the man. What should he do in his Christian home with his Christian family? The responsibility is his. And it's always been like that. Eve took the apple. What does God do? God says to Adam, what happened? He holds Adam responsible first. You say, that's not fair. That sucks. Well, it's not fair and it sucks. That's the way it is. The God of heaven put it like that. There is a responsibility for men to take within their marriage and within their family. And the weight of these verses in Ephesians 5, they're all addressed not to the women, but to the men. It's about men taking responsibility in a world where so often men would choose either to be passive 
in the face of that responsibility, or to be aggressive in the face of that responsibility. Both are equally wrong and inappropriate. So we lead our families. And Joseph led his family in a wonderful way. He's a brilliant example of loving, not lording. He's a wonderful example of taking responsibility rather than demanding his rights. And I hope we'll see that in these next few moments. Joseph led his family out of hearing, firstly, the voice of God. The fleeting glimpses of Joseph that we get all involve him hearing from God. If Joseph hadn't heard the voice of God, he would have married Tracy from down the road and Mary would have brought up Jesus by herself. If Joseph hadn't heard the voice of God, they would have called Jesus Tom or George or Jack and not the one who would save his people from their sins. If Joseph hadn't heard the voice of God, he would have had sex with Mary as was his right and the clarity of the virgin birth would have been lost. If Joseph hadn't heard the voice of God, uh, Jesus would have been massacred in Bethlehem around 2 AD and that would have been the end of that. If If Joseph hadn't heard from God, Jesus would have remained in Egypt and Israel would still be waiting for a Messiah. What does it tell me? If I want to lead my family well, I have to lead out of hearing the voice of God. You see, as fathers, hey, there are too many other voices that we want to lead out of. A huge temptation to lead out of the voice of perhaps my intellect or my reason, to lead out of my good ideas or my agenda. So I lead my family based on reason. These are good jobs for us to have. This is a good school for us to send our children. These are uh, are good neighbours for us to live and put down our roots. But God might have different ideas. In the end, much better ideas for reasons that are not even on my agenda. The Bible's best plans, the Bible's greatest successes were never worked out through reason. It was people in the wrong place, in the wrong time, humanly doing the wrong thing that brought God's kingdom in. True or false? But yet, as fathers, we want to lead our family out of intellect and reason. The Bible has very little to say about doing that in the end. Or we lead out of the voice of cultural expectation. I'll do what is expected of me as a father in these days. In which case, I probably won't lead anybody anywhere because not labelling our kids is the current vogue. Who are you to tell your, anybody else what to do, even if they are your own children? Leave them to make up their own minds. Or... All too easily, I lead out of the voice of my own insecurity or failure. There was something that I dreamed of for myself, and I never made it, so I'm going to make darn sure that my kids do, whether they want to or not. Dads on the touchline have a lot to answer for, don't they? Got to football once a week. So dad on the touchline, this last 10 days ago, whenever it was, who must have called his son a lazy wimp 20 times in one hour so that everybody could hear. That's not that unusual, actually, at Portman Road, to hear that going on. Where's all that emotion coming from? It's not his son's failure, I tell you. Sad. Dad's on the touchline, need help, fast. Or I can lead out of the voice of protecting my own image or my family's image. You spend a lot of time uh, looking right, don't we? So the emphasis in my family then is, well, we've got to look right 
And that's perhaps even more important than just being right, because looking right these days is everything. So all the effort goes into teaching us to look right. How many Christian families have had a huge row on a Sunday morning about what their kids can or cannot wear to church? What's the biggest thing driving that? What will others think? What will they think, those folks at Burlington, if I bring my child, my son, my daughter, looking like that? And so, I'm leaning out of the voice of what others might think. If we heard God's voice, we might hear him say, I don't give a rip what they wear. I'm thrilled that they're coming. And don't you dare put more stuff in the way. It's hard enough for them to come as it is. Let them come as they are. But sometimes we can't do that, can we? You're not going out with that lipstick on. You're not going out with that. You're not going out with those boots. You're not going this, that, this, that, this, that. Like it matters. Does it matter in the end? Honest, does it matter in the end? Would you rather your children dressed as they wanted to and never came? And so I find myself leading out of all kinds of things that are, that are far, far from the voice of God. And that's too easy, isn't it? Too scary. Too easy. Every day I'm listening to voices and I'm leading out of that. Joseph led out of the voice of God. And you can't fail to be struck by it. Every time he's mentioned, and it's he heard from God, and he did. I tell you, fathers, husbands, are you hearing the voice of God for your family? And for your children. And hey, look, let's just, just be absolutely clear, right? You know, I've got probably Rachel. Yeah, Rachel's here. Don't want to embarrass her, but she, right? She knows. She knows everything about my failures as a father. Okay, I'm not standing here because I do it all. Don't think for one minute that everything I preach I've got perfectly sussed, will you? Because I will not come back next Sunday if that's the deal. Okay, I'm not preaching what I've got sussed. I'm preaching what's in God's word that I need to do. Do you understand that? Don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're just doing this together. Okay, so this is not about what I... I mean, she'll tell you. She'll give you more lists about what I've got wrong before you get to that door than, than I can share with you in this sermon. So let's be absolute. There's no... Okay, big failures. But out of our failures, are we learning? Are we growing? Are we changing? Am I a better dad now than I was last week or last year? That's the longing, isn't it, of our hearts? You hear leading out of hearing the voice of God. You might say, I never hear God speak... When was the last time you adopted a listening heart, longing to hear him speak for your family, for your wife, and for your children? I promise you, if you're serious about leading your family in a godly way, God will speak to you. He's the father, the father of all. The father of all. And every yearning in us to be a better father gets the whole of heaven on our side. And if I'm going to lead out of hearing the voice of God, I've got to find myself in the word of God, haven't I? If I want to be a husband and a father that, in, that, that, that gives truth and light to my wife and to my children, then I need to be full of truth and light. Do I want my children to grow up absorbing as much godly wisdom as I can feed them? Yes, so I need to find some godly wisdom because it's not in me by myself. It's my responsibility and I need to take it seriously. And more seriously every day. And God is never more with us than when we engage with it. Secondly, Joseph led out of personal sacrifice. We've rehearsed many of them already, haven't we? He sacrificed his reputation. He sacrificed his existing circle and influence and friend, uh, Sorry, his existing circle of influence and friends. He sacrificed his standing in the community to go with that Mary. That was just the beginning. 
what was meant to be a short trip down to Bethlehem so he could quickly get back to the family business. He ended up staying there for longer than he anticipated. In the end, closing his business altogether and relocating to Egypt. Why? Because he was sacrificing himself for his family. I hadn't really seen this clearly until now. In our world, many spouses and many families are sacrificed, are they not, on the altar of career and success. Here is a man, here is a man who sacrificed his career and his business acumen on the altar of his family's need. I love him for that. I love him for that. A BBC report in February 2009, so just this last year, concluded, the aggressive pursuit of personal success by adults is now the greatest threat to British children, according to a report commissioned by the Children's Society. The study called the Good Childhood Inquiry was carried out by experts over a period of three years. It concludes that children's lives in Britain have become more difficult than in the past, adding that more young people are anxious and troubled. According to the panel, excessive individualism is to blame for many of the problems children face and needs to be replaced by a value system where people seek satisfaction more from helping others rather than pursuing private advantage. Sure, if we were Joseph, we might have expected the dash down to Egypt in order to save Mary and Joseph, but most of us might have been tempted to get on the next easy jet flight back to Nazareth for the sake of the business. If we're going to lead in our families, we need to lead out of sacrifice. Husbands should be the most sacrificial people on the earth. Why? Because we're loving as Christ loved the church. What did he do for the church? He gave everything, he sacrificed for the church. That's the model. That's the image the Bible gives us, the responsibility that's at our feet. If you did not want that responsibility, you should have stayed single. No wonder Paul goes, don't worry about the women. Life is complicated enough as it is. He had a point. With a woman comes big responsibility. (laughs) And you can read that in several different ways. Let's see how many ways we can interpret that phrase before Christmas. But the whole of the the basis of marriage is about that responsibility. Look at the definition of marriage. It starts with a sacrifice. It starts with something you have to leave behind. For this reason, a man will leave. You've got to leave something. You've got to lay things down. You've got to sacrifice in order to be united to your wife. Now, leaving your parents behind is a jolly good idea. Don't take your parents into your marriage. Your bed isn't that big and your relationship is not that strong. But there's other stuff you've got to leave behind as well if you're going to give yourself in love for one another. You have to leave behind working as if your life and your identity depend on your work. You have to leave that behind if you're going to cling to your wife. You have to leave behind living as if you're still single. It's obvious, but it's hard sometimes to see that that's true. You have to leave behind giving everything at work in such a way that when you get home, you have nothing left to give. Carry often. Thanks God for the safe return of my body and praise that the rest of me will come home soon. Many of us come home like that. With kids, the sacrifice just goes up exponentially. People get married, don't they? And then they discover that they're having a baby and they share it with you and you smile wryly. You know you cannot begin to explain to them what nuclear explosion is about to happen in their world. So you don't bother. That's lovely. That's lovely. 
You might be making the sacrifice physically, but are you making it willingly? The sacrifice of Christ was willing and free. Sometimes we need an attitude check. Am I doing this? Check. Am I doing it willingly, generously, gracefully? Check. And maybe not just an attitude check. Maybe we need a reality check. Why am I giving the very best of who I am to a business whose ultimate aim is to line the pockets of fat cat shareholders? Why am I doing that? while I leave my family, those that God has given me most, in relational poverty. Is that insane? Why should I give everything that I've got to Burlington, excuse my example, at the expense of what I can give to my family? You might say, well, it's the Lord's work. You might say that of your job, isn't it? Isn't your job the Lord's work? Isn't your job what God has given you and gifted you for? Isn't it important because God has given it to you like that? Sure. But it's not as important as the Lord's work in your family. You see, hey, somebody else can do your job, but nobody can be the husband or the father you've been called to be. Bullington can get another pastor. Pastors are two a penny. We come cheap. You can get another pastor. But my kids can't get another dad. So you will understand, I I need to be that first. I've got to win at that first. And shame on me when I don't live like that's true. And you too. What do I have to sacrifice, like Joseph did? What do I have to leave behind to be a better husband and a better father? If you don't know the answer, ask your wife. She'll know but stand well back. (laughs) Stephen Covey tells the story of a TV ad. It shows a little girl approaching her father's desk. He's hassled, there's papers scattered all over, and is diligently writing away in his planner. She stands for a moment watching him. He doesn't even notice she's there. And then she says, Daddy, what are you doing? Without even looking up, he replies, Oh, never mind, honey, I'm just doing some planning, some organizing. These pages have all the names of the people I need to visit, all the people I need to talk to, and all the important things that I have to do. The little girl hesitates and pauses for a moment. Am I in that book, Daddy? Am I in that book, Daddy? There'll be parts of our lives when we have multiple strategies to make sure we don't drop anything that's important. Why do we leave our families to chance? Stephen Covey adds, the role of parenting is a unique one, a sacred stewardship of life. Is there really anything that would outweigh the importance of fulfilling that stewardship? Well, sometimes it's drastic action. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night. Do you know, sometimes you've really got to take some drastic action. You can't wait till the morning. You can't wait till tomorrow. The situation is so serious. To protect your family, those that you love most, sometimes you have to do something very drastic indeed. Too many people live to regret that they never did something drastic when they had the chance. And now it's too late. Thirdly, Joseph led his family out of being present. Being present. Joseph knew his responsibility as a father. It was ingrained into him as part of the Jewish culture. We would do well to learn from it. It was the air that he breathed. 
It was his responsibility, Joseph that is, to shape Jesus into the man he would be. The majority of what Jesus learned was from his father. That puts Joseph in a new light, doesn't it? The majority of what Jesus learned was from his father. Day after day, he worked together with his father in the carpenter's shop. Day after day, they talked and shared and laughed and cried. Jesus learned to be a man by being with his father. That's how it worked. It was his father that took him to the synagogue. It was his father that took him to the temple for the major feasts and festivals. It was his father that would have taught him the stories of Israel, the laws of God, the life of faith. That was the father's job. It was all too important to be left to anybody else. That's not in any way to say something about or make a judgment on the role of mothers. I just want to talk about fathers this morning. But it was his job to teach those things. At Passover, it was the father who stood at the top of the table and led his family in the great stories of remembrance. Today, we have franchised out most of that responsibility. Compared to even a hundred years ago, we're now a generation that lets everybody else, dads, do our job. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. I'm sorry it says that. Exasperating your children is great fun and good sport for a while. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The year is 1895. 1895. James is just 13. All day he's walked along, he's worked, sorry, alongside his father. Watched the way he held the hammer, copied the style of the blow that forged the iron, and even shod two great cart horses himself. As he lifts his head and gazes out across the fields, he sees his best friend walking behind his father as they plough the field together. For as long as anybody in the village can remember, the smithy and the farm have been there. Generations of fathers have passed the ancient skills on to their children. And as they worked side by side with their sons, they taught them the deeper things, the deeper things of life, things deeper than ironwork or the way to turn the horse at the edge of the field. They led them week by week and over the years into manhood. The lessons learned have not always been gained easily. Some in the village remember when Harold the Tanner died. He was just 40 years old and his son, only a week past 14, had taken over the workshop. He was just a child, but now with seven mouths to feed. Of course, for a while, the leather wasn't as smooth as when his father had fashioned it. But after a year, there wasn't a woman in the town that could tell the difference. And seven were fed. His father would have been pleased. He had taught him well. The year is 2005. And James is 13. The modern James has not spent time at his father's side today. His father had left the house before he rose and James has been at school all day. On the way home, he called at his piano class. As soon as he gets in, he turns on the television and sits glued as it both entertains and educates him. By the time he goes to bed, he will have experienced a multitude of teachers, both human and electronic. Some will have told him facts about the world that he lives in and others will have conveyed their feelings. Entwined in the geography will be the question of why people in Ethiopia are hungry. Alongside the science will be the big question of where it all came from. And in religious studies, the issue of what is really important. Others will have either tuned or dulled his ear to great music, moulded a mind to politics, taught a sexual ethic, 
and help create a man. At nine that evening, he will meet his father for the first time that day. His father will say, what did you learn today, son? And a 13-year-old boy will give the universal answer of the teenager, nothing. But the truth is different. The truth is everything. If I don't influence my children, I have to do life with them as much as possible. If I want to influence my children, I cannot delegate the big issues to somebody else. Should I leave it to the school to help my children understand where we came from and why we're here? Should I leave it to the media to help my children come to terms and understand and respond to their own sexuality? Should I leave their peers to help them develop their own moral compass? Each day our children are learning everything. Is that okay? Do we sit back or do we engage? Trouble is, engagement takes time. Values so often are caught, not taught. Teaching takes time. You need teachable moments. What if we're missing all the teachable moments? Do you know the 98% of the time when you can't tell your kids anything and the 2% when they're glued to what you're saying? Trouble is, you don't know when they're coming. No one waves a flag in the morning, says 2 p.m., my heart's going to be open, I'm ready for a deep and meaningful. You've got two minutes to say something and I'm listening. Nobody tells you when they're coming. We need to lead out of being present. In fact, almost all fatherly responsibility requires you to be present. What's the traditional father responsibility? Wait till your father gets home. Trouble is, if that's what your father does when he gets home, he'll lose you. Should fathers discipline? Of course, absolutely, without question. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves, and so should we. But Proverbs has some wise advice. A father disciplines the son. He delights him. If we do not delight in our children we lose the very context to discipline them. And what does discipline so often spiral into, into anger, animosity, loss of relationship? What does it cause more alienation than a bringing together? Because so often we discipline and we have not delighted. There's only one way you can demonstrate to your children that you delight in them, and that's by being with them. That's by the time, that's by the physically, emotionally engaging, being there, not physically, but emotionally engaged, full on. You need to lead out of being present, there's no other way. Hey, most understand the phrase, window of opportunity. Most men hate to miss a window of opportunity. It means a time when there's an opportunity to do something, maybe to break into a new market, maybe to develop some new technology, Maybe to net an important customer, but it's a window and you have to seize the day because you know that window that's opening will very soon be closed and if you miss it, you miss it. So many fathers, you've never missed a window of opportunity in business, in their jobs, in their careers. Look at the window of opportunity called childhood and live as if it will go on forever. 18 years, 6,570 days, that's all we've got an opportunity to be with them, to impart the values that matter most, to lead them to walk with the God of heaven. This was said generally, but it might just as well have been said of fathers. Be careful then, hey, how you live. 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. You see, there are loads of Herods out there. There are loads of Herods out there who will not think a tuppence about destroying your marriage, crushing your children, breaking your families up, be it people or systems or values. We are surrounded by Herods that are roaring and sending out their messengers to kill and destroy. True or false? There will be messages sent into your home already today that are designed to kill and to destroy because they will draw us away from what is life and what is holy and what is godly. And God says, hey, dads, rise to the challenge. Hey, dads, come on. It's not that mums haven't got an awful lot to do. We'll find another sermon on mums. Many more jokes about that. Only kidding. Hey, do you know, it's, it's, it's the window. That'll soon close. Some of you, maybe you feel like window's closed because your kids are grown up. Well, you know, God does wonderful things. God does wonderful things. It's never too late to say something you wish you'd said 20, 30 years ago. Never too late. In fact, a word 20 or 30 years too late can bring incredible healing. You'll be amazed. And when I say, and when we say, I, I want to be a better father, there's a cheer in heaven because the Father's there. Do you know in life sometimes you feel like you're going against the flow? In worldly terms, this is all against the flow. But the real flow, the real life, the real song is in heaven. And it's led and sung by a Father. And when fathers say, I'm in, the whole of heaven cheers. And he's on our side. Let's pray, shall we? We read that Joseph grew in wisdom and stature. And maybe we want to say, well done, well done, Jesus. But in that culture, what it was really saying maybe is, well done, Joseph. Well done, Joseph. And we know there are no guarantees. God is the perfect father, and look at the mess his children worldwide are in. There are no guarantees. But there are things God asks of me as a husband and as a father. And if headship really is loving and not lording, and if it really is responsibility, not rights, then maybe suddenly as men we're less keen on it. And maybe as women we're more ready to embrace it. It's a new, different way. When men do what God's asked men to do and women do what God's asked women to do and it's a glorious partnership and children grow up in love and security. They grow up in in an environment of grace. They grow up seeing and knowing what it is to trust and to love the God of heaven. Help every father in this room, I pray to lead, not to be passive, which does nothing, or to be aggressive, which does nothing, not to be passive, which can be destructive, not to do uh, everything aggressively on their agenda, which is destructive in the same way, but to lead out of hearing the voice of God, to lead out of sacrifice, to lay our lives down for the flourishing of our wives, of our families, of those God has given us. 
to be present, fully present, mind and spirit engaged, to be listening. Thank you for Joseph. And in many ways, as fathers, we're asked to descend into greatness.